Welcome to our afternoon uh, session. We are in our church history um, curriculum, I guess you could call it, here at Bethany. And uh, we have parked ourselves in the 5th century. So uh, it's going to be important for us if you have your handout. I'd like to point out one thing real quick. Turn over to the very back page. There are some reference books there um, for your perusal. I would recommend if you're interested in all things, and I'm going I'm to give a caveat, Augustine or Augustine. I'm, I'm going to say Augustine, so uh, Thaddeus approves. Um, all things Augustine, uh, you can find those references there, particularly pertaining to the city of God. This is the second, um, second session in this series. We, a couple months back, we had started with uh, Augustine's um, controversies and then his confession, and now we are in Augustine's cities. So it is uh, the city of God that we will be looking to. But prior to doing that, um, if you would open your copy of God's Word, we're going to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. And we're going to read the entirety of the third chapter. So Philippians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the text, uh, we'll pray, and then we will open up the work before us. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. uh, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Also let us hold true to what we have attained. 
Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is in their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things unto himself. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time that we have together. We ask that you would be with us, that your spirit would guide us as we think through the work that is before us with your scriptures in mind, that we set what is ultimate for us, not looking to the things that are behind, but pressing on to the upward things. Help us to keep our hearts set upon you to wait expectantly for the return of Christ. Though we are peeking back in history, Father, help us uh, to be guided by that in even our present time, that we may know what ought, what ought, how we ought to live as Christians in a fallen world. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Hold on one second, let's swap out packs. Some reason you cut now. It's always fun to have technology at work whenever you're trying to teach or instruct. All right, so I'm going to make a couple of announcements real quick. Your your outline obviously does not contain all of the information in book one through five. Um, That's why there is an outline that was handed out as well. It gives you kind of an outline. Is that better? Huh? Higher. Right there. Is that better? Okay. Um, But we will kind of go through this. It's not going to be um, exhaustive in your handout, so I'm hoping that you'll get enough. My goal with this session, as it was with the others, is that it would intrigue you to look into Augustine if you haven't, or or even to pick up the City of God in any of the abridged versions. and try to follow along, seeing the world that Augustine lived in from his worldview. Um, and I, I did want to say we are simply just looking at the historical book itself. We're not interacting or examining from our own perspective or tradition anything that has to do with, with Augustine's position. We're just looking at it from a historical standpoint. All right. So we'll do a little recap um, for those of you who are with us. Um, what led to the writing of this book was, of course... Primarily a response to the sacking of Rome uh, in the year 410 by the Goths. And it was because of that ruin that the pagan charge against Christianity was that Christianity itself was the root of the the city's downfall. Um, Also, we touched on a little last time, one of the events that may have helped to fuel Augustine's writings was the death of Marcellinus, his friend. In fact, in book one, in the opening, uh, he pens this work um, to Marcellinus, who had, um, he, whom he had promised that he would undertake this apology. And so um, Marcellinus's death uh, occurring in 413 at 
uh, at the hands of uh, civil authorities. He was executed along with his brother. Uh, and then Augustine also picked up writing in 413. So may have been a, a very close connection there. Um, I know uh, during the Donatist controversy, uh, Marcellinus and Augustine attended that uh, as well. And in Marcellinus's trial, Augustine came to his defense. So could have had a very good impact on, on Augustine in the writing of, of this work. In fact, the opening I'll read real quick that he penned to Marcellinus, the glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son, Marcellinus suggested, and which is due to you by my promise. Uh, it would be impossible for us, or possibly even difficult for us to comprehend in full view the shock that ripped through the known world at that time when Rome fell. Uh, it was the center of the known world, and outside of Augustine, we find men such as Jerome. Some of you may know him as St. Jerome. Uh, he was writing his commentary on Ezekiel at the time that he had found that Rome had fallen, and it is said that he, for three days, sat stunned, said nothing, stopped his writings, um, and then when he was later writing, uh, writing to a friend of his, he commented, um, Rome has been besieged, the city to which the whole world fell has fallen. If Rome can perish, what can be safe? Now, Augustine was not as dramatic as Jerome, but still he lamented about the fall of the city. Um, in fact, Augustine, while on one hand was very clear about why Rome had fallen and come to such disgrace, he also held hope that she might one day be restored, uh, that there would be a, a return to her old values and that there might be a reestablished sort of rising of, of Rome. In fact, uh, Augustine saw the entirety of human history as it had been. Uh, we said a little, bit a little bit about this last time. Uh, there had never been a philosophy of history written uh, quite like Augustine. Um, his contemporaries of his day saw the events of history as being cyclical, happening over and over again. Uh, but Augustine had a more linear view of history as it unfolds, starting with the garden and heading toward the eschaton. Uh, so that was an, a, a difference between Augustine, I'm going to say Augustine. If I mix the two up, don't laugh. Augustine, that was a difference with Augustine and his contemporaries. And while he makes a defense against the pagans that charge Christianity for the downfall of Rome, he does leave a little bit of blame toward Christianity um, inasmuch as the God of Christianity is the one who judges the earth and will judge all things at the end of the age. So since that is the God of Christianity, uh, there is some blame that he will take, but no more than that. Uh, the overall book's structure is, and this is where we left off last time. We, we looked a little at uh, Augustine's summary and grouping of the books, so we'll kind of pick up there now. The book is structured in 22 actual books. Um, we might actually refer to them as just large chapters, but it is 22 books written over 13 years from 410 to 426. Um, it doesn't really have a structure in the book itself other than chapters, but Augustine later writing uh, in his revisions and in his letters to Firmus, uh, letters, letter 212a, he, he does commend the writing to Firmus, and he says, hand this to you know, a few people that they may read it, and then here's a structure for how it should be read. These books should be grouped together this way. 
But I find it interesting that he says probably not more people are going to read it. Just hand it out to them and give them this, this outline. Of course, here we are, however many millennia later, and we're still looking uh, to Augustine. Book one through five, and I'm going to use um, I'm going to use the I'm going to use the summary of Augustine himself. Or actually, this is uh, from Dodd's translation, uh, which is referenced in the back in the in the reference books, refuting the thought that those who worship many gods are doing so that their affairs will prosper. Likewise, again, those who would say that the, correct, that the current evils are caused because this practice is forbidden. So the first five books are really an answer to the charge that the reason Rome had fallen was because, uh, well, in 391, paganism had become outlawed, but that because they could not worship the pantheon of their gods, Rome had suffered. And so that was, that's the, uh, the outline of those first five books. The next books are books 6 through 10, uh, and, and this is how they are summarized. Against those who say that humans are always to worship these gods, offering sacrifices to them for a future life and death, these ten books, 1 through 10, refute those opinions which contradict the Christian, the Christian religion. Augustine says at this point, if someone were to charge Christians that we only refute opinions of books without giving our own, then the t- next 12 books are a positive uh, injunction, injunction against that charge. So uh, from Augustine's perspective, um, the next four books are, are an answer to uh, the reason why worshiping false gods do not give good life here, nor do they give a good life in the afterlife. And just in case you want to charge us with only refuting opinions, will give you substance. So that's where Augustine writes in those books. Uh, Books 11 through 14 contain an explanation of the origins of the two cities, one being gods and the other being of this world. And books uh, 15 through 18 treat the growth and development, the history of those two cities. And then finally, books 19 through 22 describe the aim or the goal of those cities and also the outcome of all things. Now, I, I did apologize for the shortness of the last lesson, uh, but I referenced that and gave plenty of room for this one to be longer than normal. Um, I'll try to keep it short. That's why we're not going to do all 22 books in this session or the next one. But we are going to look at the first five. And before we open the first five, I want to point out an overarching set of goals that Augustine has in his writing. <clears throat> Number one... It is to offer a devastating critique of of the Roman criticism of Christianity, Uh, even to point out that those those critiques that are levied against Christianity don't even stand when you turn them back on Rome. It can't answer, uh, it can't can't stand up to its own standard of judgment. And then the second kind of clear goal that we see um, is to give a higher distinction of the aim and end of the city of God which is much more glorious than that of the aim or end of the city of man. And I think we can see that Augustine had a, uh, an effort where he wanted to sharpen and fortify Christian thinking around public theology, um, public theology being the theology that explains how Christians interact in society um, with political matters and such. 
This Christian theology, which basically talks with society instead of at society about those, those things. So that's kind of the two overarching, I think I've outlined those in the, in the handout. Uh, there's a third point down there that says, in that higher view of the city of God, Augustine addresses questions about society, politics, and the Christian role in public life. And I, I don't know where any of you are in your own standing or thought on this development, but there isn't a Christian in this room that is disconnected or an otherwise called to stand aloof from the society in which you reside. All of us uh, are called, even in the closest sphere of our families, uh, our, our churches, the society at large, maybe in your vocation, God has seen fit in his providence to grant you public life, serving in the civil authority somewhere. Um, nobody sets their Christianity at the door. We, we must function within a fallen world that is more increasingly hostile toward God and toward his people. And so this is a good work to help us kind of get through that. It is the earliest work. Um, I think Augustine can probably say he is, the, 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 he is kind of the path cutter, if you will, into understanding the difference between two kingdoms and two kingdom theology. Uh, and we do see that develop later uh, with Luther, who adds to more detail on government. Calvin picks it up. Um, but this, this really is the first fruits of really thinking through the challenges of, of the day. This brings us to the two cities. Augustine sets the city of man, the city of God, as distinguished by the standards that they live. The city of man and its citizens live by the standards of the flesh. And the city of God and its citizens live by the Spirit. You can see uh, there's a reflection there, of course, from the book of Galatians. Um, Ultimately, as we mentioned last session, Augustine says these two cities are very different in their loves. I'm going to quote him in saying, We see that these two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by a self-love reaching the point of contempt for God. And the heavenly city, by a love of God, carried as far as a contempt of self. So these two loves govern and function within these two cities. This separation is necessary in the mind of Augustine as uh, there was no dual citizenship in his model. Uh, each, each member is a member of one city and that one city only. Um, Augustine points to Jesus' words in John 18.36 to say that while Christians live in the city of man, they do not belong to it. And there is a way in which... Um, which God's people can go from being in the city of man to being citizens of the city of God. If you could just think for a minute, how would that happen? We, we asked this question last time and Aaron answered, so you can't answer again. How, how would a person go from being a member of the city of God to being a member of the city of man from being a, to being a, city, a member of the city of God? Anybody want to take a stab at it? It would. it would. It would definitely be from being born again, being converted, being taken out from under Adam and put in Christ. Yes. Um, so then this earthly city is not the true home of the Christian. Rather, the Christian's home is in heaven, and it is to that city that the Christian's affection, time, talent, and treasure is pointed at. Uh, for Augustine, though, he was very much looking at a city 
with a foundation whose builder is God, but it was, there was still an earthly element to that. All right, let's look at books one through five. There's a lot of content. I'm going to try and not speak so fast. Uh, just bear with me as we work through this. And my goal is if, if I make this boring or confusion, confusing for anyone, that you still have that list of references on the back. They'll clarify everything I say. All right, books one through five. And due to the tyranny of the clock, I'm going to try and just skim through the subject matter. If, has anybody here picked up either an abridged version or the full version of the City of God by a show of hands? Anyone? I could totally make all of this up, and you guys won't even know. <laughs> Nobody. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a very broad work. Um, in fact, I... I don't remember who said it, but if anybody has said that they've written an exhaustive commentary on the city of God, he is lying. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very broad. So we're, we're just going to skim across a few subjects that I, I believe are very helpful for us within these books. But this is in no way going to exhaust the content of each book. I, I guarantee you that. Um, so I'm going to hit on some big themes and practical questions from these books. Um, the grouping of book one through three... Uh, it, these books were written in 413. I think the groundwork for these books was probably being considered, as I said, at the time of Augustine's defense of Marcellinus, um, and, but they were completed by the end of that year. And I, as I said already, Marcellinus was executed in September of 413. Uh, the following year, uh, he was acquitted by uh, Emperor Honorius in great government fashion. After he was found guilty and put to death, he was a year later exonerated. But that's a different story. The opening to this work uh, is a defense, an argument, or an apology against the charges made against Christians as being the very reason why Rome fell. And there are two points to which Augustine focuses upon in these, in these three books. And it's, number one, I think, did Christianity influence, did Christian influence turn the Roman gods against the city or the empire? That's one question that you kind of get from these first three books. And then number two, had Christianity's growth within Rome and within Roman politics brought ruin to what Rome considered its own virtue? So these, these two elements are rich within the first three books. Uh, it is interesting that uh, Augustine does not make, he doesn't break out scripture in the first three books per se. He doesn't make scripture his point of argumentation. But rather what he does is he takes the reasoning of the pagans in their charge against Christianity and he uses that exact reasoning to examine their own practice in history. So, and I don't know if many of you know this, uh, Augustine was a great argumentarian. He was a, a, a master at, at argument. And in fact, one of the books... Um, at the end of the next session that we'll do, at the end of this work, uh, is probably the best, the best work in, in the entire book of his argumentation anyway. So, Lord willing, we'll get to that. Looking at book one, the argument of book one is this, and as I said, all these summations are taken from Marcus Dodd uh, edition in the headings. So, book one, the argument there is Augustine gives a wholeheartedly disagreement. He is censuring the pagans who attributed the calamities of the world, especially the recent sacking of Rome by the Goths to the Christian religion, um, and particularly the fact that Christians prohibit the worship of the multitude of gods. 
He speaks of the blessings and ills of life, which then, as always, happen to both good and bad men. Finally, he rebukes the shamelessness of those who cast upon the Christians uh, that their women had been violated by soldiers. So there's all manner of topics within book one. And I'm just going to switch to book two before we look at each book uh, individually. Augustine reviews the calamities which the Romans suffered before the time of Christ. And those calamities were suffered while they were worshiping the false gods. And demonstrates that far from being preserved from misfortune by those gods, that the Romans have, by them, overwhelmed with the only. uh, So basically, their entire practice of worshiping the gods neither saved them nor hurt them. In other words, or at least the greatest of the calamities um, were probably due to the corruption of their manners and their vices and their abandonance of virtue. So book, book two has more of a, a virtuous argument from the standpoint of worshiping false gods. Book three, as in the book before, Augustine has proved regarding moral and spiritual calamities, so also in this book he proves regarding external and bodily disasters. That since the foundation of the city, the Romans have been continually subject to those calamities, And that even when the false gods were worshipped without rival before the advent of Christ, they afforded no relief from those calamities. So as you can see, the argument is turned against the pagans using their own argumentation. And there are some questions in these books that I believe Augustine does a very good job at answering. Number one, did Christianity make the sacking of Rome worse? Uh, this was one of the primary charges that was levied against, against Christians. And Augustine points out that during that raid, when the Goths were slaughtering Roman citizens and soldiers, pagans and Christians alike took refuge within churches, which saved them from Alaric's attack, the king of, of the Visigoths. Um, it is interesting that Alaric himself was... Uh, sympathetic to the Arian Christian sect at that time. He then points out the hypocrisy of the pagans who then attacked the one and only true God and his people by claiming that their gods and their luck was what saved them. So in one degree, while there was a, a law within Roman war theory that when you sacked a town or another, another area, you didn't, you didn't tear down or attack people in their temples, though Rome quickly moved away from that as a practice, and they they began to tear down temples and slaughter people on their way to the temples and even in the temples. But in the sacking of Rome, Roman citizens and Christians alike took refuge inside of churches. And in book one, Augustine uses language of you, sought re- you and your people sought refuge within the church where the murderous rage of the attackers found no foothold past the threshold of the door. So you were safe. But then afterwards, when you left, you attributed, blaspheming the work of God and saving you, you attributed your salvation to your again false gods. So that was kind of the summation of, of Augustine's pointing out of their hypocrisy. 
Another question that we find uh, in, in these books that's answered is, was Rome better before Christianity came along? Um, how many here have studied Rome, Roman Empire, in either school or... Yeah, and so if somebody asked you to give a description of Rome and the nature of the citizenry of Rome, you probably have a very good, uh, overall, wonderful view of Rome. But you, you find that virtuous view more in the historic areas of Rome. But at, up to this point, Rome's practice of immorality and less practice of virtue had become a, well, it had become a detriment to the city itself. And so Augustine's position is Rome did not suffer because of Christianity. Rome began, Rome's downfall began long before the Visigoths, long before Constantine, long before, and he goes on. So he points out that the calamities that had befallen the empire were due to its progressive lack of virtue and morality. And in this book, August, in book two, Augustine reflects in book one in several places to make the point that, and this is what he says, we, we need only to read history in order to see that the calamities the Romans suffered before the religion of Christ began to compete with the worship of God. So all you have to do is look back a little ways, and you'll find that their calamities were already afoot. Book one referenced the war between Troy, between Troy and the Greeks, and this was another point that Augustine uses. He says, he says, if you both worship the same false gods. You both give sacrifices to those gods. Why did, why was Troy, why did Troy fall to the Greeks? Where were your gods to protect you then? And finally, another question that I think we get from book one and two is, or three, is why did Rome last so long? So maybe the real question isn't whether Christianity was the reason for Rome's downfall, but why did it last so long to begin with? Um, he's going to answer that question in book four, but I, I will point out he does make two points that I think are very valid. Apart from being the will of God to last that long, Augustine says it was a strong military and a disciplined political body. Those two things carried Rome along. Once Rome's military became effeminate and once its body politi politic had become corrupt, Rome could no longer stand as a city on earth. Um, I think there's a lesson there if we consider the, the country in which we dwell. I think there's good warning uh, there for anyone who might look to the current situation that we're in. But nonetheless, this is what Augustine attributed to the fall of Rome. Uh, there are some quotes uh, from book one through three. I'm going to kind of skip through a few of these because of the tyranny of the clock. Um, book 1, chapter 10, Augustine says uh, that the saints in the sacking of Rome by the Goths lose nothing in the loss of their temporary goods. And this is what he says. He says, for under these tortures, that was the calamities and the suffering of Christians, and he, he, does, he does say, look, both Romans and Christians, both pagans and Christians suffered. And Augustine's overall point is that from the worldview of the pagans, you cannot answer why there is suffering. You cannot give an answer for why there is sin. The Christian can. In fact, he says, while 
Your idols needed to be protected and guarded, and their guards were slaughtered outside of their temples, and your idols were stolen. There is no God, no idol in the, in the Christian church from which they can, for which they can steal. And so the idea that pagans needed to have guards to guard their idols, which failed during the sacking of Rome, he says, our God is much greater. Um, the idea that Christianity was the reason for the fall of Rome uh, is, again, repeated within this book. But I'm, I'm going to give a quote. He says, while those tortured were Christians, no one lost Christ by confessing him. So here's an encouraging word for us. You, you may lose your life confessing Christ, but you will not lose Christ. He goes on to say, no one preserved wealth by denying its existence. So if you were charged and tortured and asked to deny your home, you didn't gain your home. You didn't lose your home. But if you were asked to deny Christ, you would lose everything. And so that's kind of his, his reasoning in that, in that quote. Here's another quote from book two I found interesting. He says, there are indeed some among them uh, that is among the pagans, who are thoroughly well-educated, have a taste for history in which the things I speak are open to all their observations, but in order to irritate the uneducated masses against us, they feign ignorance of these events and do what they can to make the vulgar believe that those disasters which in certain places and at certain times uniformly befall mankind because of Christianity. And this was... Um, this was, again, due to the charge that there was suffering among the pagans and that it was only the pagans that were suffering. Book three, uh, there's another quote I think that's going to be very helpful for us. Speaking of the virtue of the Roman citizens and the pagans, he says, it grieves them more to own a bad house than to have a bad life. So this is, again, gets to the heart of the city of man. The city of man is, is governed by a love for self um, and for the material items in the world. And he says, as if it were man's greatest good to have everything but himself. That sounds familiar to us, right? If you can think of the scriptures, right? What does it gain a man? I believe this is, this is one of the charges. Though I said he didn't mention scripture, he certainly uses reasoning from scripture against the, against the Romans. Um... Books 4 through 5, these two books were written in 415. And the argument of book 4 is this. Uh, in this book, it is proven that the, the extent and long duration of the Roman Empire is to be ascribed not to the gods of the heathen, to whom individual, for whom individually scarce even single things and the very basest functions were believed to be entrusted, but to the one true God, the author of internal happiness, by whose power and judgment earthly kingdoms are found and maintained. So book four starts off with a review of the first three books, and then he begins to attribute Rome's success and its life to the very will of God, the one true God himself. Um, book five, the argument is basically around the manners of ancient Rome and shows that it, in what sense it was due to the virtue of the Romans themselves. So there was... At one point, they had, they had virtue in Rome's history. They, 
they gave no thought to the one true God that was preserving them. But then, in this later time, during the Roman sacking, or the uh, um, sacking of the Goths, uh, ancient Rome at that time had come to an end. Their dominion increased, but it was not because of their worship to their false gods. It was because of the will and purpose of God. All right, book four um, disputes the idea that their empire was even good at all. I have a few quotes from that book. Uh, Particularly, Augustine categorically states that the false god that the Roman citizens had worshipped and whom some continued to worship in secret, since paganism had been outlawed in 391, um, that those are actually, they do so because they are possessed by unclean spirits, holy, malignant, and utterly deceitful demons, he says. So it was no... It was no small thing that the citizens of Rome worshipped these false gods. He quickly attributes it that these are demons. This is a demonic activity. Um, In book four, he says the pagans gave false credit to their false gods for the long reign of the Roman Empire. Uh, And to make this point, Augustine reduces the city of God and the city of man to two individuals. Basically, you have one rich man who's tortured by fears and consumed by greed, and then you have another man, more virtuous, of moderate means, with a loving circle of friends and a family and a benevolent mind. These two cities are reduced to these two men. And he asks the question, to whom lies happiness? To whom, in, in whom do we find happiness? Is it, is it the man who is tormented is it the man who, um, who is rich and consumed by greed, lacking in virtue? Or, or is it the man who is modest and moderate of virtue, or with, with much virtue, um, and untroubled in his conscience? Is that man wholly happy, or is these, this other man happy? Um, he then makes the point in Book 4 that when good men reign, uh, they are beneficial to society, but when wicked rulers reign, it brings harm to the people. Um, There's a couple other points, I think, that are helpful to us. Augustine next deconstructs the hierarchy of the Roman gods, and I was chatting with Manir just before this session, and um, he he had done some study on the hierarchy of the gods of Rome. And his, his answer was to the pagans that had said, you know, any one of our gods could preserve the entirety of Rome, the empire and all. And so he kind of mocks them in book four, and he says, you have gods for everything. You have gods for the hills, gods for the fields, and you have a god for the door, and a god for the hinges, and a god for the threshold. The god of the door cannot affect the duties of the hinge god, And the hinge god cannot affect the duties of the threshold god. So to which of your false gods could maintain the entirety of the empire? And of course, uh, reducing the hierarchy of the pagan gods was uh, a charge against their own system that could not stand. Augustine concludes by saying that all earthly goods are in the power of the one true god, not the false gods of the Romans. Book five, um, I think, is an interesting area for our, an interesting area for us to focus. In book five, is 
the question, can Christians contribute to society? Of course, we would say yes. But Augustine fleshes this out um, in the person of uh, Theodosius. And um, I don't think it's controversial to say that if we asked pagans today, can Christians contribute to society, pagans will probably say no. Um, And that's exactly what they had said in Augustine's time. Augustine does argue that Christians can contribute to the good of a wider society, and he uses Theodosius as an example uh, in his imperial leadership and in his humble willingness to do penance for his own sins when he was confronted by Ambrose of Milan. So far, Augustine had sought to explore why Rome could last so long and extend so far in her imagined rationale for the prosperity of uh, that the prosperity she had was due to the worship of her false gods, but he says that is not accurate. And then he turns back to his initial concern, and that's this, that if Christians can be positive contributors to society, then what would a good Christian prince or a good Christian ruler look like? He says, for neither do we say that certain Christian emperors were therefore happy because they ruled a long time or dying a peaceful death, left their sons to succeed them in the empire or subdued the enemies of the republic or were able both to guard against and to suppress the, attempted, the attempt of hostile citizens rising against them. But the happiness of a Christian emperor is found in this, if... And in book five, he gives 12 if statements. And we'll conclude book five with these statements. Number one, a Christian ruler rules well and is happy in ruling if they rule justly. If they are not lifted up amid the praise of those who pay them human honors... If they make their power the handmaid of his, that is Christ's majesty, by using it for the greatest possible extension of his worship. If they fear, love, and worship the one true God. If more than their own, they love that kingdom in which they are not afraid to have partners. And if they are slow to punish and ready to pardon. If they are aptly to punish as necessary to government and defense of republic, and not in order to gratify their own taste for war. If they grant pardon, not that they let iniquity go unpunished, but with the hope that the transgressor would amend his ways. If they compensate with mercy and the liberality of benevolence for whatever severity that they may be compelled to decree. If their luxury is as much restrained as it might have been unrestrained. If they prefer to govern depraved desires rather than led by them. And finally, if they do all these things not through ardent desire of empty glory, but through the love of eternal happiness, not neglecting to offer to the true God who is their God for the sins for their sins and sacrifices of humility contrition, and prayer. Augustine says, such Christian emperors, we say, are happy in the present time by hope and are are destined 
to be so in the enjoyment of the reality itself. When they are that which are those who wait upon Christ. He said earlier, it is God who makes us happy. It is God who is the true riches of the minds of any. So for Augustine, in conclusion, to answer the charge of the pagans was to present the truth of the one true and living God, to use the history of Rome against Rome itself, to not succumb to the pressures um, and the surmounting charge that came against Christianity, but to give a bold and reasoned answer, to not let Christianity be pushed away into uh, a quiet corner somewhere while the world seems to unfold around it, but as ambassadors of Christ within a community, within a nation, within an empire, we are called to be the light of Christ. We are called to do all of those things that we find in the if statements, rule justly, restrain our own desires, uh, put away and squelch a desire for anger in ruling. These attributes we might find even well used within our homes, within our families, seeking God for help always. So that concludes us. Uh, in the first five books, we will, by God's grace and in his strength, um, look at the last four books, which will speak about the aim and the goal of both cities. I will stop there and ask if anybody has any questions. There is a mountain of data behind the tops that we just bounced across. Um, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but maybe as you're thinking through um, your own life as a Christian in our modern times, how do we participate in the structures of our government? How do we how as I, as a Christian, how do I teach in a public school system? How do I, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but how do I, how do I look to politics, um, science, education? Maybe these things have, have kind of bounced around in your life as they have mine. Maybe it's led you to ask or think about some questions, and, and maybe in reading through these five books very briefly, it's maybe triggered a thought or a question, so... At this time, I would open up any questions. If you have a question, just raise your hand, and we'll get a mic passed around to you. Ammon has a question. I don't think it's working, Ken. Okay. The subsequent generation then uh, essentially essentially um, put aside the virtue and strove more to live toward the hedonism and that was the the impetus for the change in what was once a virtuous society not because of Christianity but because of the human you know they're just trying to live uh, you know right way even by their own human strength but that that change came because of who they essentially let into their homes and teach their children is you read anything about that, or did Augustine? Yeah, Augustine actually mentions that also within the first five books, um, particularly the uh, instruction. Uh, he says, 
think one philosopher, a Greek philosopher, his name was Virus, I think, but his teachings polluted the virgin minds of young boys and young, young girls. And so that was an, an allusion to that exact effort. Um, and that led to a lot of the youth corrupt as it came up through, through the Roman ages, that their, their youth were taught foreign and uh, virtueless, if you will, standards and practices. Um, even so much, uh, Augustine lays a charge at the Romans um, regarding the Roman games, that, that those, those practices were demonic in the sense that, you know, you had uh, the gladiator games, you had tortures and, and, and rapes and all kinds of things that happened at the entertain, for the entertainment purposes, and they attributed that to the, that was, an, that was an, giving homage to the god Jupiter, and then all these other acts, these terrible acts that happened during those games were also attributed to specific gods, gods of war, gods of, you know, whatever, and, and, and that became, that was part of the you wanted to see the virtuous that ended in the ending of virtue, that's what kind of precipitated out of that was this mind, mindset of, of the Roman games, which extended for, I think, two weeks, ultimately, and it was just a terrible bloodbath. But yeah, that was the corruption of the young minds of the Roman children through the Greek philosophies was, was one area that, that Augustine touches on. So that is a good point. Anything else? Aaron told me I didn't wait long enough last time because he had a question, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for a long time. <laughs> Anyone else have a thought? Comment or question? Uh, a bit of a question. Well, yeah, question. Um, so I read a while back this book, but I remember there being a part about like even in the theater, the politicians could not be ridiculed, but you could ridicule the gods all you wanted. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah there was a theology around, um, around the play acting, um, civil theology. Uh, he breaks down three different theologies in, in book five. I, I didn't have time to touch on that, but, but yeah, there were, there were there were borderlines um, in the acting, in the play acting. There were things that were off limits. And it was funny because um, the political realm could not be made fun of, which is interesting because all of the most corrupt things you can imagine were happening at the political realm. Uh, so kind of to shine light on that, whether it was for comedy or entertainment, was a no-no. Is, is that what your comment was? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Augustine touches on that in book five. He breaks down the three different theologies of both the state, the theater, and, uh, uh, and their, um, basically the spiritual theology of their gods. So very interesting. Anyone else? This is way too easy. All right. Aaron, you want to lead us? You don't have a question?
Dismissed.